Good morning, church. Um, my name is Josh Gresham. If you don't know me, uh, I've always, I was always told by uh, my previous pastors that I should always introduce myself, even if you know most of the people in the room, because somebody may not know you. So I want to introduce myself. My name is Josh Gresham. I am the associate pastor here, and uh, I am very, very privileged this morning for the opportunity to uh, get the opportunity to preach. So I'm excited to be here, excited to be up here doing this. As Brad mentioned, Michael is out this morning, so I'm sorry if that's disappointing to you. Uh, I'm taking over. Uh, but Michael's out this morning getting to celebrate his parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and that, that's a blessing uh, in his life. Uh, it's a blessing for him to get to worship together with them this morning. He and his brother, uh, Tony, are both in ministry, and they both took the morning off from their churches to spend time uh, with their parents. So I'm sure that they are being blessed by that. They were very excited to do that. I know the family was excited to get there this morning. So uh, let's jump in. Our time this morning will be focused on the book of Joel in chapter 2, verses 18 through 32. So if you want to turn there, you can, and we'll get there in just a minute. If you have not been with us uh, recently, or if you're a guest this morning, we're so glad you're here. But what we've been doing is this year we've been walking through the Bible uh, together as a church. We've been doing a Bible in a Year reading plan. And this week we actually uh, found ourselves in the book of Joel. So uh, we're, we're getting almost kind of to the end of the Old Testament. So uh, stay strong. I know it's easy uh, as you kind of go through these Bible reading plans to to maybe fall behind, but I want to encourage you to, to keep going, to, to catch back up, to get back to where you need to be, uh, because we do believe it's important. The scriptures are extremely important. Knowing the word is extremely important. So this morning, uh, together, we're going to be jumping in uh, to the book of Joel. As I mentioned, we were kind of going through some of these prophetic books, and as we find ourselves in the book of Joel, we, we get to know a little bit uh, here of, of this very small but very powerful book of wisdom and insight about Israel's struggles and God's power and might. As we look at this book, we see Israel's, as I mentioned, struggles with sin within their covenant of God. We see God's power over all the earth and how he is always in control. We see God's desire for his people to come back to him and dwell in him. And we see God's goodness and redemption of his people when they turn from their sinful ways and return to him. Our passage will begin, as I mentioned, in verse 18 of chapter 2. But before we jump in, let's get a little bit of context on the book of Joel up into this point. Joel himself is even a bit of a mystery, along with the questions of when the book was even written. Most scholars believe and agree that the book was written after the Babylonian exile, which would have been... 586 to 538 BC, and because of the context clues from this book, uh, the exile is being looked at as kind of a past event. So we're kind of past the exile, we're down the road a little bit, and Joel is writing uh, to the people of Israel. This would be, or this would put us in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah if you're looking at uh, the narrative of Scripture. So you kind of get a context there if you want to go back and look there as well. We can also see from context clues specifically that. Joel himself was a, a man of the scriptures. We have a lot of, of scriptural references in the book of Joel. And he himself uh, was full of the knowledge of the scripture, which I believe gave him a, a good basis and, and a good foundation for his, his faith, what he believed. This not only gave him understanding of the current situation that they were in, because it wasn't the greatest one, but he was also able to see and, and have hope in the future, knowing that God would always prevail, provide, 
and also protect. In chapter 1, we start by seeing the current state of Israel and their struggles in famine and drought. Locusts have come and plagued the city, much like what happened in the book of Exodus and judgment against Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joel mentions that the locusts have eaten all of their vines and crops, removing from them their food and drink. So they have very, very little at this time. Not only will they go without, but more importantly, they will be without proper sacrifice to God because of their loss. In verse 16, in chapter 1, it says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes joy and gladness from the house of the Lord? Joel then calls them to repent, and that kind of is the the theme here. He gives this example, but he calls them to repentance, to mourn and to cry out to God for his provision and his mercy. In chapter 2 we begin, it speaks of the future plague, the future day of the Lord. And although it uses kind of similar language and is spoken of like the plague of locusts, it is speaking of an army, and we see that very quickly that is coming to overtake them. This day of the Lord is coming with a vengeance. The description of this day sounds pretty terrible, honestly. They will overtake the city. There's going to be so many of them, and it's going to be so overwhelming that it will darken the city. And the earth will quake and shake because of them. This is an army of God. This is an army of God, the locusts being of God, Because of the sins of Israel. He ends with, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? This army is under the command of God, as I mentioned, and only God himself can stop them. So what then is there to do? And then we see a pivot in verse 12. And we see the answer to that very question. Even now, return to me with all your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious And merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is echoing the beautiful language from Exodus 34 on the character of God from his own mouth. So this speaks to Joel's understanding of Scripture, his knowledge of the Scriptures. Joel is calling the people of God to repent and to mourn their sin. It's led them to this place that they're currently in, and he wants them to rid themselves of that sin. To trust in God. And believe that he will bring them back to the place of relationship with him that they have been called to to begin with in this covenant. Let's read together this morning in Joel chapter 2 verses 18 through 32. It says this. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will make no more, or I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerners far from you and drive him into the parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindications. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. 
The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. He has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in these days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So as we're reading this text, we see that almost, uh, as I mentioned, there's, there's a pause again. And God, hearing his people in their repentance, responds. As he hears them, his response uh, is, is a good response because we can see right before that he is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And he responds in that way. We see his character as he responds. Joel again leaning himself on the scriptures and promises and fulfillment of God from the past prophesies on behalf of God to speak of his goodness and grace to those who trust and rely on him fully. So let's dig in together to this text, uh, section by section, and I've kind of broken that up. If you have your bulletin, uh, you can see on the back of your bulletin there is some notes there, and I'm going to be kind of working through those notes. And, and as we work through those notes, you'll see each section of text uh, kind of as, as we work through it, um, but really starting in those first few verses of 18 through 20, we see that our repentance brings about God's restoration. Our repentance brings about God's restoration. This future imagery here is a picture of God's response to his people turning from their sinful ways and desires and chasing after him wholeheartedly. They actually did full circle back to God. I also think this is important to look at in context again at the examples and extent of what is being called to from the Israelites, what is being called of from God to them. First, he says, to return with all your heart. And I think that language is important. As we look at the words of Scripture, we should be able to, to, to look at these important things and see that it says there, with all your heart. This is speaking to the, the fact that it cannot be half-hearted. Half-hearted repentance is not repentance. Wholehearted repentance is real repentance. And there has to be willingness to be let go of sin. This is full surrender. This is full handing over to God what is his in your life. He also calls them to weep, to mourn, to fast. He calls all of the, the people to fast and to consecrate themselves. He calls the priests and the ministers to, ministers to plea with the Lord and to let everyone see and hear the cry for God's redemption. This is a, a real picture of, of, of mourning. 
of repentance, of pleading with God, of pleading with him so that he would answer them, that he would see them, and that they would be able to be back with him, be back in good graces, be back in, in, in good relationship with him. And it says not only will he give favor, but he will restore them the provision and safety from the attacking army. They will be satisfied and no longer hungry. They will be safe and no longer fear for the attacker will be nothing but a stench of death to them because God will end them immediately. I know that's kind of a vulgar picture, right? This is kind of a, an extreme picture. We've got all of our kids in the room, so sorry. But this is the reality of Scripture. He's saying that this, he can take them out so fast that, that only their smell will exist anymore. They will not even be there. God will be fully in control over what he is over. And that is all things in this situation. From the bad to the good, there was punishment and redemption. We see that picture kind of throughout this, and I'll, I'll reference back to that again and again. They are still the people of the covenant. Israel is still the people of the covenant. Even when they didn't always hold up their end of the bargain, Israel was still the people of the covenant. And God always keeps his promises. He holds up his end of the bargain. So that leads us to our second point here, and that's in verses 19 through 23, that God's love and provision give us reason to rejoice. And it's interesting to see this and the language of this right after some of this kind of doom and gloom, right? We see the difficulty of what they're struggling with, what is to come, what is to come in this prophecy. And then he says, but God is going to give you reason to rejoice. As God shows himself in power and in love and mercy through restoration and provision, he tells them that they are to rejoice. We all have a rough idea of what rejoicing is. We all have kind of this picture of, of what it looks like to rejoice. But, but of, in, in typical me fashion, I wanted to look up the actual definition. And so it's very simple, and this works for me. The definition of rejoicing is to feel or show great joy or delight. When we rejoice, we are showing God how we feel. We are showing God and praising him and giving him recognition that he is deserving of. And scripture says we do this because the Lord had done great things. So I have a question kind of in the middle of this. I really thought on this, and this was, this was something that I had to, to kind of look at in my own heart and look at this. Is when was the last time you really rejoiced? When was the last time you truly were overjoyed by God's goodness in your life that it brought you to the point of praising him? I'm not talking about singing here in church, and I do believe that's a great thing. I, I'm a big proponent of that. I think it's amazing. I think we should worship together. We should do so in singing. I think that we should sing to each other even. But that's not what it's pointing at here, but this is kind of in the day-to-day. -day. As we go on with our lives, as we, as we seek to, to minister, as we seek to, to make God known in our lives, when was the last time that we truly rejoiced over the fact that God moved or worked or did things in your life that are good, because he does all the time, right? Well, the saying goes, and you can probably do this with me, right? God is good all the time, and all the time God is good, right? We are all called to rejoice because it is, showing, it is a showing of worship to everyone that would see that God is good and worthy of praise. As we rejoice, as we worship and give God the praise he is due, 
Rejoicing is this picture of how we, we live this in our lives. Are we actually glad and joyful over what God has done for us? Are we making known the good things that God has done for us? Are we praising God actually for the works that he is doing in our lives? As again, I mentioned, I'm personally challenged to this, uh, to allow my rejoicing to be an example to others of God's goodness in my life. And that's what was being talked of here. This, this ex- example of, of rejoicing, this example of joy in their lives was a way for them to show God's goodness to those around them. That people would see their joy in the Lord and that it would point them to, it would point them to God. That they would be those that are so joyful that they would seek to bring God glory in their joy. The third thing we see here in, in verses 24 and through 35, so a bigger chunk here, and we'll kind of break this up a little bit and digest it a little bit differently here in a minute, is that God will replenish his people both physically and through the Spirit's indwelling. Joel mentions here that they will have grain in abundance and vats so full of oil and, lo- and wine that they will be overflowing. That God would restore to them everything the locusts had eaten and the army had destroyed, and even more than they had had before. Now remember here that God has, uh, God was the one that brought about the locusts and the army and did so in judgment. And I think we need to keep these things in context, right? Judgment and redemption are, are kind of the theme of, of what we see here in the book of Joel. Because of this, he has control and can stop them in their tracks. And not only that, he has the power over restoring what was destroyed. God is that powerful. God is able to, to take away and give in abundance in, in the same voice. And this picture here is, is that God was able to not only write their path through judgment and the army and the locusts that came, but he brought them back to even better than they were before. They wouldn't just have what they needed, but they would have more than enough. The promise was for abundance, that they would be satisfied. In bringing them plenty, he also takes away their shame. This is a picture of joy. And I think when we look at this, and we need to reflect on this, this picture of taking away shame isn't something that is, is probably as common as we would hope it is. When things are going good and we're able to forget about our shame, right, we put those things in the past, but when things go bad and we at times will go back to our shame, it can kind of be a, a, something that, that brings us back down, right? We, we maybe lean back into the negatives. This is not what God speaks of here in this text, though. He seeks to give blessing and rid them of their shame, to never be thought of or dwelled on again. That their shame would not even be a thought because of God's goodness and God's provision and God's care and love for them. That God, as much as so, would have just gotten rid of what that past was. But in his goodness, God does that. This is a picture of freedom that only comes from God. When we allow God to take control of our past sins, he can rid us of them. Even the thought and, and the worry of them or the dwelling on of them. 
God seeks to redeem you. He seeks to, to lift you up and to carry you on past that sin. He doesn't want you to dwell on that anymore. And so in doing so, he, he seeks to, to raise his people back up. We see that along with physical needs, he will give them something more invaluable than anything else that's been mentioned so far. And that is the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit will give wisdom and understanding and so much more than they could even fathom. Jesus himself says it better, it better that he would go, that the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the hearts of man in the New Testament. The Spirit is powerful, right? We see that the Spirit is very, very powerful. And here he says that the Spirit would give this opportunity for them to know God on a different level. We'll discuss this more in just a moment as we kind of break that section down, as I mentioned. But in 26 and 27, verses 26 and 27, we see the fourth point. That God's work within his people will give reassurance of God's presence. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. Again, Israel is the covenant people. As God wants to be in the midst of them, he wants to be in the middle of them. Because of the harsh differences uh, in the two circumstances, there will be no other way of explaining it other than the working of God. Oftentimes I hear people pray similar prayers to this text. That God, that you would work and you would move in such a mighty way that it would only be explained by your working. That it would only be explained by your, your movement. And that's what he's, he's picturing here. This is what he's trying to picture for, for the reader. That they would only be able to explain in a way that it's, it's God. It has, it's God. Nothing else could do this. It's such a dramatic difference from, from the, the pictures that we see here. Only God can restore things from death to life. And that's the picture here. From death to life, from suffering to comfort. And their sin, the Israelite people, are on a path of destruction. And here we see that their repentance and correction has led to abundance. This is truly something only trusting in God can do for us. Allowing every person on earth to look and see that God is good by, by the amazing things that he does in our life. And again, he does. He works in so many awesome and amazing ways. God is a God of mercy. And in this situation, the mercy is exactly what is bringing hope to the Israelite people. The fifth point we have this morning is in verse 28 through 31. And that's that the falling of the Spirit would bring revelation. So again, as I mentioned earlier, that the Spirit would come and that it would help them understand, give wisdom, would help them be able to fathom exactly what's happening, help them understand the depths of what this means. And that's, that's the picture here, is that Joel transitions here away from provision physically and hearkens to the Spirit. Speaking of how the Spirit would fall on God's people in all of its power and God will open the hearts and the minds of his people in a way that they had not experienced before. They would see visions and prophesy in God's name. They would dream dreams and know God in a deeper way than they ever had. And I believe this isn't uncommon, right? When we see somebody accept Christ today, when they call on the name of the Lord for salvation and chase after him as they should, 
we see the, the same revelation and deepening understanding of God. When we understand and take in God's love, mercy, and grace, we can understand that God is the God of the scriptures that we read about still. And we can understand him on a much deeper level. When we read the scriptures, we, we start to understand it. You may see vision, you may not see visions or dreams, but you definitely understand God's word better. And it is revealed and almost lights up differently when you read it. We understand his love. We understand his grace. We understand his mercy. We understand his care for you and for all his people. Scripture tells us that when we trust in Jesus, we, he, his will is revealed to us because he uh, wants good things for us. The will of the Lord is for us to, to live in this same sense of goodness and abundance and care and love and mercy and grace. Uh, live in the love that God has for us. All of these things will signify uh, this picture of God's working in your life. There will, there will also be these, these obvious pictures of destruction. So we see here really probably the oddest section of this text where it talks about uh, the, the, that there will be fire and the pillars of smoke and those things. These will be obvious examples of destruction and darkening happening, signifying the great and awesome day of the Lord that is also to come. So we've kind of hit on three days of the Lord now. And here he's saying that there will be another great and awesome day of the Lord. Many scholars believe this to be uh, speaking of Jesus' second coming, right? The return of Jesus where he will, he will not be coming again as a suffering servant, but instead he will be coming as the conquering king. All these things will signify that day and when Jesus will return to right the sins of the world. That leads us to my last point uh, for this morning, and that is uh, in verse 32 we see that those that call on the name of the Lord will be redeemed. Those that call on the name of the Lord will be redeemed. Even through all of this, this difficulty of understanding the scriptures here, and we see uh, the difficulty the, that the Israelite people are dealing with, there is always the goodness of God. There is always God's provision. There is always God's protection. And we see that here, that those that call on the name of the Lord will be redeemed. I love this language because it points us to two awesome truths of God. The first one is that he is a God of salvation. He wants to redeem his people back to him. He wants you to come back to him if you are far away. Or if you don't know him, he seeks to know you. The second thing we see is that the name of the Lord is the only name that holds the power to save. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the Lord is important there because he is the only one that has the ability to do that thing, to save them. To save them from their death, their future death and destruction and bring them to life eternal. Paul even quotes this in Romans 10, verse 13, except with the privilege of knowing that Jesus had already fulfilled the covenant and defeated death. That fact alone that we have as well should give us reason again to rejoice, to be happy in the Lord, to be joyful in the Lord. So how do we respond to a text like Joel chapter 2, even kind of getting through to this point? Joel gives strong view 
here in chapter 2 of the two opposing sides. As I mentioned, God's judgment and God's restoration. When God's people come to him broken and in true repentance, God restores. He restores physically for the needs of his people. He restores internally by writing the hearts of those that know him, giving them true joy and praise. He responds eternally. He restores eternally by saving souls and bringing about redemption so that his children are truly understanding that he is a really good father. Although easier said than done at times, when we fully trust in God with our whole heart and lean on him for every bit of our provision, he is able to provide for us far and above any ability we have to provide for ourselves or even could fathom. When we remain prideful and seek our, to fulfill things on our own way, uh, we, we take away from God what is God's. We seek to do it ourselves. We seek to fulfill our own needs. Uh, it always seems to leave us wanting more. But when we allow God to fulfill the needs that we are, sat we are satisfied and our hearts are extremely full. When we give up our sin that we think is good in our lives, God replaces that with joy in him and the fullness of the spirit. So I always try to give some kind of takeaway or, or, or question as I leave. And I know I've already given you a couple things here. But Joel is calling the Israelites to repent, to trust God and allow God to save them and redeem them in covenant and by way of salvation. So do we trust God with this level of trust? Would we be those that would say, God, it's all in your hands and I will follow your will in everything I think, say, or do for eternity? Have you trusted God in this way? Have you given him your whole life? And I, I think, sadly, we see many people feel the need to trust God, but then when it comes down to it, they struggle to give him everything, to give him full control and thus never fully surrender to him. They are never his. When we are living in Christ, are you experiencing true joy and rejoicing over what good he has done for you in your life? Do you realize, the, do you feel when God is working in you? God works in big ways and small ways. And we should allow all circumstances to bring us to this point of worshiping him, to rejoice in him, to have true joy and faith in him. So here in just a second, I'm going to pray. And if God is stirring in your heart today, my request and my, my, my plea with you is that you would respond to his word. Brad and I will be up here at the front. Uh, we would love to speak with you about this. We would love to speak with you about what it means to respond in faith uh, to Jesus, it what it means to, to repent of your sins, what it means to, to trust in God fully. But I do believe that when the word of God is read, the people of God are called to respond. And that response looks different for everybody. Maybe it's that you need to come up here and you need to, to use these steps as an altar and, and to pray. Maybe it's that you just need to sit in your seat and to call out to the Lord. But whatever that response is, may that response be one of, of obedience and action today. Again, I, I do believe that whenever the word of God is read, the people of God are called to respond. So, so let's join together in prayer. And, and as our, our worship team comes back up here, uh, we're going we're gonna to respond together in worship. So let's pray. So God, now in this moment, we humbly ask that you would be 
or we would be those that would seek you, that we would know you, that we would seek to rest in you, knowing that you're good and your ways are good beyond our comprehension. May we trust in you with everything. Not seeking to keep things of our own, not seeking to rely on self, but God, instead giving you everything, wholeheartedly surrendering our lives to you. God, may we rely on ourselves less each day and more on you for everything that you do in our daily needs and our daily tasks. Not only that, God, would we rely on you for our eternity, for our salvation, for our sanctification. God, that you would seek to grow us into exactly what it is you have for us. God, I pray that if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you or is far from you today, God, I ask that you would impress upon them your goodness your love, that they would turn from their attempts of of self-fulfillment and and seek to give everything in worship to you and bring you joy. And by doing so, God, that you uh, would give them joy unlike they've ever experienced. Joy that only comes from knowing you and releasing all control to you. God, thank you for Jesus. He is alone, able to save And we ask that you would move uh, in that way here today, God, that that maybe there is somebody being prompted right now in this moment that doesn't know you, God, that doesn't know your love, that doesn't know true joy or, or mercy or grace. God, we ask that they uh, would seek you, that, that they would be open to you. God, in all of this, may we fully rely on you in every aspect of our lives. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.